if you're a gifted child, you learn from a very young age, whether this is blatantly pointed out to you or just implied, that your gifted mind is incredible or valued or amazing. And a lot of us attach our identity to that. So the minute we start to struggle, which everyone eventually does, it can be really earth shattering. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Okay, we are going to waste no time and jump right into episode 131, in which I interview Annie Crow. Annie is a late identified autistic ADHD disability rights lawyer and internationally recognized neurodiversity advocate based in Australia. Annie is also a twice exceptional adult or 2E, meaning gifted and disabled. And we discuss the concept of 2E and how giftedness can often mask and hide the disability growing up, leaving many kids undiagnosed and unsupported. Now, between speaking engagements and producing her own wonderful podcast called Princess and the P, Annie is an autistic empowerment coach and neuroaccessibility consultant working with the Australian government, not-for-profit sector, and more to provide her unique expertise on disability rights, neurodiversity, and public policy. Annie's book, Neuroaccessibility, A Practical Guide to Building an Accessible World for Neurodivergent People, will be out in October 2023, and you can pre-order it now. There is a link in the episode show notes. Annie and I talk about how an initial diagnosis of PTSD soon led to a dual diagnosis of autism and ADHD, and we talk about how she distinguishes between those two diagnoses as well as the symptoms of some other chronic illnesses and how she has learned to advocate for herself to get the support she needs and how she now helps others to do the same. And we also talk a lot about hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and its links to autism and ADHD. I've put a trigger warning on this episode because we do very briefly talk about sexual assault, eating disorders, and miscarriage. So if any of those topics are difficult for you, you might want to skip this episode. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy my wonderful conversation with Annie. Before we even get started with this interview, I just want to gush for a bit. So I heard you on the Neurodivergent Woman podcast, which I'm a little bit obsessed with, and I was blown away. I was like, this woman is incredible. Who is this woman? And so I was just blown away. It was, it was all about disordered eating and just hearing your story. And I just was so enamored. And I went, so I was like, I have to find out who Annie Crow is. I found out about your podcast, started listening to your podcast. And just from the trailer alone. So, you know, in my in my introduction, I say my ADHD diagnosis turned my world upside down. And your trailer, you said my autism and ADHD diagnosis turned my life right side up. And even <laughs> just that alone, I was like, I have so much to learn from this woman, right? I just was like, oh, that's buckle so up, right? I was like, buckle up, you were in for a ride. And sure enough, like, I just, I don't know, I like, I don't think I could ever possibly gush enough. I just find your podcast so 
enlightening and insightful. And I just feel like we are cut from the same cloth. And I feel like we're friends already. And so I feel like, well, and that's the thing is like, I I would only say that because I know you've said that on your podcast, too, where it's like, there's just people that you're just so drawn to. And I feel that with you. So I'm so excited that you even had heard (laughs) of me, much less were willing to come on this podcast. Uh, I feel like this is totally reversed. Like I'm the one fangirling because I've been listening to you for years. Like, literally since before my son was born in 2020. Um, so I, I love what you say and I love that you've quoted me because I've to- I'm totally going to quote you back at some point in this interview. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for inviting me. I'm, yeah, I'm very excited. Oh, I'm so glad I found you and I'm really, really, I know I'm really, really excited and I'm just hoping I don't screw this up and get all tongue-tied. Oh, don't but- worry. <laughs> Beauty and grace. <laughs> Embrace it. Okay, so let's start with, gosh, okay, so you had a PTSD diagnosis that really started all of this, and that was from a car Mm. accident, correct? Yes, um, and a sexual assault, which uh, is really not uncommon, especially for the autistic women, um, rates as high as 90%. Was this in university? Uh, No, it was actually in my grad year in the working for the federal government in the public service. Yeah, on a work trip. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. Um, Yeah. So I was – and I'd only gotten married maybe six months earlier. Yeah, really, it shocked me. And then a year later, uh, I was on stress leave after two years full-time work. Uh, And while I was on six-week stress leave, I was in a really traumatic car accident. (laughs) So I had a bit of a bad run, but, like, my whole life was sort of really hard already. Right. As most of us are already experiencing. So it was just like the icing on the cake. And that really started a whole thing. So when I went on stress leave, I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression, put on antidepressants, started seeing a psychologist for the first time in my life at 23. And I'm almost 32 now. So that's been like a decade. And it was then like another four years going in and out of every doctor specialist under the sun because I had a lot of physical injuries from the car accident as well and seeing a bunch more therapists. (laughs) I stuck with the first one for two years because I had no idea whether they were good or not. I just assumed that that was what I was stuck with. Right. That was my first psychiatrist too. She was god awful. She fell asleep during one of my sessions and I still didn't leave her anyway. (laughs) This is my point. So I actually was looking at notes the other day from my old sessions and like some of the stuff that she said to me, I'm like, how did I not see the red flags and go, I need to find someone better. But that's just kind of reflects how poor I trusted my own judgment and how much I internalized my any problem that happened to me. Um, I think that's also really common for our community. But yeah. Anyway, now I have a great therapist who I still see weekly and I don't think I'll ever stop, to be honest, which is a huge privilege, by the way, that not many people have access to. But I hope that most I, – I mean, this is why – I mean, I talk a lot about diagnosis and identity in my advocacy work and my coaching. And I am pro-diagnosis in the sense that if it's going to get you more support and if it's going to enable you to get – the protections that you deserve under like disability discrimination and such, very important. But I'm also pro social model of disability and, you know, embracing your neurodivergent identity because, I mean, I've learned the hard way (laughs) that fighting it will only really probably hurt you mostly and only get you so far to an extent. But that's like a whole thing to unpack. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, anyway, so yeah, then four years in, I um. I kind of hit hit an end point of 
seeing pain specialists and having a few surgeries and the last pain specialist I saw said, well, we can't do anything else. I think you should see a psychiatrist. And until that point, I'd only seen psychologists. So I went to see a psych psychiatrist and got diagnosed with PTSD. And when I started looking into PTSD, and by the way, I'm a military brat, so I grew up thinking PTSD was what people got from war and only weak people because <coughs> stigma. <laughs> and it's, yeah, obviously not, <laughs> first off. Um, but really, it was when I was researching PTSD that I started to see a link between traits of ADHD. And that made me then obviously deep dive into ADHD in women. And then I went into my GP and I said, I need to go see someone who specializes in this. I'm pretty sure I have it. So I was really, really lucky because she sent me to one of the most neuroaffirming psychiatrists uh, in my probably country, to be honest. His books have been shut since just after I saw him, which sucks. And when I had my, my session, which was only like a couple months later, I did what many of us do, which is walk in with a binder tabbed up with like all this evidence of my life, which by the way, is very <laughs> autistic um, thing to do. Not saying that if you did that, you're autistic, but it is a very autistic thing to do. Constantly battling between executive function struggles and order and control. Paper organization. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's my hashtag my life. Anyway, so he, he did the big assessment on me. And at the end, he's like, so what do you have? What do you think you have? And I was like, well, I've already been diagnosed with anxiety, depression, PTSD, and I'm pretty confident I have ADHD combined. And he's like, yeah, anything else? I'm like, uh, <laughs> is that a trick question? <laughs> Legit. Is that a trick question? And he was like, yeah, you're autistic. I'm like, what? I didn't even I didn't even have anything to have preconceived notions about that. I didn't know what Rain Man was. I didn't know literally anything, which I think is a little bit of a blessing because I just had no judgment. I was just really curious to figure out was he right first off, which considering he agreed that I had ADHD, I thought he's at least a little bit legitimate compared to a lot of women experiencing being gaslit by medical professionals who should know better because we uh, can keep jobs or have marriages or whatever. Insert positive trait here. Insert ridiculous, stigmatized <laughs> stereotype here. Yeah. But so then obviously I, I really, really, really started to explore autism as well as more ADHD. And now it's literally my job to help others do that. And yeah, I'm, I'm very autistic. I, I joke. I was writing an article the other day. I haven't published it yet, but I started the title with I'm profoundly autistic <laughs> or I have profound autism because um, I'm very against functioning labels and I have a, I can talk about that for days, but I would be what people consider high functioning autism and I just don't really agree that that's a thing. <laughs> a lot of what I do, so the people I coach are mostly twice exceptional autistic ADHDers, so my course is autistic empowerment and um, – Majority of them are women and non-binary autistic ADHDers who are also gifted. And it's a bit of a niche, <laughs> but also um, it's a complex area because giftedness is a really difficult topic. People really don't want to acknowledge giftedness. You know, you hear of like gifted and talented programs. Well, gifted and talented are very different things. Giftedness isn't just intellectual either. You can be musically gifted, creatively gifted, intuitively gifted. There's so many types of giftedness. But really what twice exceptionality is, is when your gift said giftedness can mask and hide your disability. 
And so therefore, one, you don't really shine as much as you probably could. So maybe you weren't even identified as gifted, potentially, or, and usually, you don't get disability support as well because you're not seen to be bad enough. And this is why I'm not for functioning labels because the cost of that and the cost of masking and the capacity to mask, which masking is a privilege that some people don't have access to. And it means that we are less discriminated in life because we can camouflage as neurotypical sometimes. (laughs) So I got to acknowledge that first, but masking is also so harmful and damaging. And I still mask. I don't really think you can fully unmask in this world. So I'm not really for the whole unmask fully, but you definitely try to unmask as much as you feel safe. And that's different for everyone. And privilege comes into that a lot, but we still need just as much support. And the outcome of not getting that support is having some of the highest rates of suicide and mental illness and shorter lives, poor life outcomes, unemployment, underemployment, that it's so substantial. It may not be super obvious, or at least maybe they're not linking the reasons for that. And and just to be clear, it's not the ADHD or autism that's causing it. It's the fact that society isn't set up to value or support our neurotype. And that's really the core of what I try and teach people is that You need to understand all the systems you live within and how that impacts you. And it's actually really similar. Um, I was reading your book the other day, uh, which I owned for years, but I hadn't read yet. Really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because I was like, oh, I I should probably catch up. I've always got a thousand books on my book list. It's it's a whole thing. Yeah. It's actually, it correlates, like it aligns very closely to body positivity or body acceptance and toxic diet culture and fat phobia. There's so many correlations and that's another area that I do a bit of advocacy in, obviously, because I've done a lot in the eating disorder space, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. (laughs) But it's similar in your book, how you were talking about, you know, that your life has just become so much easier since accepting your body and not continually trying to change it and fight it and hate yourself for your different body. It's very similar, but it's about our brain. It's it's invisible to an extent. <laughs> well, and you know, an- another thing I think that was very parallel in terms of anti-dieting, my anti-dieting journey and ADHD diagnosis was this aha moment that I had around binge eating, which was that it was once I realized that binge eating was a disorder, right? It was like, this is not normal. I am not simply failing at being a good dieter. This is a disorder and I am not the problem. The problem is the diet and how, what it's doing to my body, et cetera, et cetera. And once I had that moment of like, I'm not the problem here, I'm not failing at anything. My body is just doing a really good job at taking care of me. That was when I was able to really address like some of the systemic issues around dieting. And I feel like that's very, there's a lot of parallels there to a a neurodivergent diagnosis of like, oh, it's, I'm not the, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not the failure here. It's the system around me that has failed me. And so I think there's so many parallels there with needing to have that like switch flipped in our brain about who's the pride, (laughs) that we're not doing anything wrong here, that we have been failed. No, absolutely. Yeah, because I mean, and that's the kind of the system we live in is that we're pathologized and the faults put on us and not the world around us. Um, But I mean, it's interesting, even the language you use there, because really what failed you wasn't your 
disordered eating. It was diet culture and the society you live in and the standards you're held to. And that's similar with neurotypical or neuronormative values and behaviors, isn't it? Yeah. That's the problem. It wasn't really your eating. And also the things that led you to binge eat is more often than not, and this isn't spoken about enough, is that most people who binge eat tend to be the ones that are chronic dieters. And if you think about how our bodies are made in terms of, you know, caveman and starving and hunger and famine, <laughs> if you are forcing your body to continually go into a famine, the reaction to that is generally going to be a feast. Right. Yep. So I actually thought I had binge eating issues for years because when doctors and health professionals saw me, they made assumptions and didn't question anything of my behavior deeper. And because I ate more than maybe what some could would consider average occasionally, that was a tick in the box for binging. But really, I only did that after a significant portion of time starving myself. And I'm actually, my diagnosis was atypical anorexia, which I think the word atypical needs to be thrown in the bin because 96%, I think 94, 96, something like that. 94%, us, yeah. 94% of us are atypical. How is that an atypical thing? <laughs> but that's fat phobia within the diagnosis because um, you're only not atypical if you're underweight, which is ridiculous because you can be just as medically compromised in a large body starving yourself. So that's discrimination 101. <laughs> yeah. And the behaviors that are pathologized in a, in a thin body are encouraged in a larger body when it comes to eating. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, don't get me started. Me neither. <laughs> Just give me a rant sesh. <laughs> They're therapeutic though. Right? <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. So wait, I had some notes about the gifted stuff too, because there's so much there in terms of, you know, I was in the gifted program and that's where I feel like that's where it all started unraveling for me, you know, being having these higher expectations and not living up to them and being told I had all this potential and I wasn't meeting this potential. And so friend, a, a couple of friends of mine who I'm sure now were, uh, I, every one of them is neurodivergent. We had a club called the Gifted Underachievers because we didn't know how to deal with with the fact that we did so poorly and we kept waiting for it to get kicked out of the program and we never did. And so we just started skipping class and it was just like, there's just all of that feeling of just, you know, that we had truancy issues because we couldn't handle being such underachievers and like what that said about us and our sense of self-worth was so damaging. So damaging. And I, so I feel like even just this this idea of telling children that they have potential is so is just damaging, at least to a neurodivergent brain. And I think that's where it's interesting. I remember seeing like a tweet once about how telling a, a neuro telling a neurotypical child or a certain type of child that they have potential may actually encourage them, and it may actually be um, something that they need to hear in order to get them to push themselves. But for another certain type of child, it's actually really, really damaging. Terrifying. Yeah. Right. And so I thought that was interesting to be like, how do we even be able to realize how important language is to certain types of thinkers at such a young age? Like, it almost feels like we were screwed from the beginning. Yeah. And then you add demand avoidance in and the minute you feel like there's any perceived pressure, <laughs> of achieving that can be complicated. But I think something that's not often talk, talked about enough in that, because I've got a very similar experience to you, wasn't in a gifted and talented, but my school didn't particularly have one, but I did the top extension advanced maths. Um, so all my friends were nerds and most of them are doctors and engineers. And I was always like pretty solid A minus student. 
And so I thought I was constantly failing because all my friends were A, A plus students. <laughs> the thing that I think is really important to highlight in the achievement aspect and, and everything that you just explained and why we feel that way is that if you're a gifted child, you learn from a very young age, whether this is blatantly pointed out to you or just implied, that your gifted mind is incredible or valued or amazing. And a lot of us attach our identity to that. So the minute we start to struggle, which everyone eventually does, it can be really earth shattering. And then on top of that, create a lot of imposter syndrome and disillusionment and self-loathing. So many complicating factors um, because, you know, one minute you're this, you think you're a smart kid and you're told you're a smart kid or it's pretty obvious to you that you're pretty quick or whatever, but the next minute you're really struggling and you're told when you struggle that it's your choice, that you're just not applying yourself or you're being lazy or you're not living up to your potential. Like the all the things that we're told, but I love the saying, um, all behavior is communication and kids do well when they can, because I think that really if anyone ever struggles in school, gifted or not, it's not a choice. It's rarely a choice. I don't even think it is ever actually a choice. And if it's a choice, it's a choice as a consequence to their experience and how they're being treated. And I don't think that is really highlighted enough. Well, not only that, but that's where I think there's a real gender divide in terms of how children are supported. Because I think that oftentimes in a classroom, if a boy is showing is, is struggling or having, you know, some of these hyperactive, typical ADHD behaviors, the response is, we need to diagnose this boy, we need to help him, we need to support him. Whereas oftentimes the response to girl having similar behaviors is, it's a character flaw, you need to figure it out, you need to discipline her, right? And so I feel like there's a gender divide even in the earliest classrooms in terms of how support is built in to the male experience so much more, whereas women are supposed to be the support system. So we need to figure it out on our own. There's not, you know, we're not being catered to in the way that that men are uh, at such I an totally early agree. age. Yeah, it's a huge, huge, from birth, I think that gender gap grows. If you have ADHD, it can often feel overwhelming to find the right treatment. And then when you finally do get an appointment with your local clinician, there's no guarantee that they will have the adequate background or understanding of ADHD in adults, especially in women. You might end up leaving that appointment more confused and disheartened than when you entered. That's where Dunn comes in. Dunn is an online ADHD care platform that can get you all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. With experienced clinicians who know exactly what to look for, you can start getting personalized care as soon as today or tomorrow. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Dunn for just $79 a month and pharmacy co-pays as low as $0. Visit get.dunnfirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that's get.dunnfirst.com slash podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. Talking about like gender and how we're treated differently, I think for gifted learners or gifted humans, because so much of giftedness is, is spoken about in terms of schooling, but there's a lot of gifted adults that are still around and getting no help <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, or support, um, is really that you're held to a higher standard. And I'm not saying that a lot of this stuff is hard to talk about because it sounds so stuck up or whatever, but it's like 
one of the things that I got early in therapy and to a extent still do from some people is, you know, uh, lower your standards, lower your, your expectations, you're a perfectionist, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, yeah, but I was literally raised that way. Like because I was gifted in certain areas, everyone then assumed I would be like that in all areas, which is just never really how it is, isn't it? Like we all, they say a lot of twice exceptional kids have a spiky profile. So we're really good at some things, but we really struggle with others. And a lot of those things we don't get help for or acknowledgement. So one of the things that, you know, I spoke early, um, very, very early, but I read not late, but I struggled with reading. I actually started school a year early um, because daycare's like she's bored <laughs> and I got bullied by the big girls. <laughs> and I was, uh, my parents went into the parent teach interview um, and the teacher said, oh, she's a little bit behind her peers in reading. They're like, you know, she's like over a year younger than the youngest person in your class. And she was like, oh, I forgot. Like, <laughs> of course. But um, I did struggle with reading. I still do struggle with reading. And now I'm realizing that's a lot to do with my multiple neurodivergencies. But when I was quick to speak and I'm quite articulate, even when I'm in a meltdown, I can be really articulate sometimes. And that makes people think that I'm consciously choosing how I'm reacting, which is absolutely not what's happening. Mm. But in that articulate nature or, you know, I was called like a wise little girl or far beyond my years, blah, 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 you know, all those things. Adults then expect you to be that in every way. But I emotionally and socially, I really struggled. And it's like they didn't want to acknowledge that because my intellect was the only thing that they saw. Um, and that's sort of where I guess the autism comes in. Um, and I know one of the things you were keen to talk about is the difference between ADHD and autism, which is a fun topic. <laughs> well, I almost I almost envy the fact that you got your diagnoses together because it's like if you follow the trajectory of my podcast, right? It's like it starts out and I'm like, oh my God, ADHD. Let's talk about ADHD. This is ADHD. This is ADHD. Blah, blah, blah. And then like about a year into the podcast, I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Are we actually talking about autism here? And I just like did this 180 where I was like, okay, how do we even begin to decide which is which? And a lot of it was the generally feeling very confused. And like, I know we talk, you've talked about this on your podcast too, like how it's ADHD is the gateway diagnosis because a lot of us start to talk about like the, you know, all of the sensory issues and stimming and, and rejection sensitivity. And it's like, wait a minute. And then somebody who is autistic will say, you're actually talking about autism. And so then it's like, well, wait a minute. Am I being ableist by talking about this from a framework I'm comfortable talking about it with, with it, which is I've been diagnosed with ADHD and this is my lived experience. Am I being ableist by not acknowledging or looking more into the fact that this could actually be autism? Is there an overlap? And so are these, are these experiences that both people can have or is this really just like even the term neurodivergent, which is something I'm much more comfortable with because I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm basically self-diagnosed at this point. I do not have an official diagnosis of autism, but it's like there's so much. I mean, even just like the autism self-exam, which I go down these rabbit holes where I start taking autism self-tests. And there's the one that makes me <laughs> laugh so hard is the autism the autism spectrum quotient test, which is yes, like it, yep. it's so problematic. I have so many problems with this test. And the test says if you get 26 or higher. That's a very autistic thing. <laughs> To have many problems with it. Exactly, right? I love it. I love it. <laughs> so the first time I took the test, it said, if you get 26 or higher, you're probably autistic. So I got 26 and I was like so angry. I was like, this is not helpful. And then I'm like going through these questions and I'm like, 
I am fascinated by numbers is one of the questions. And I'm like, what kind of number? What do you mean? Fa- I'm not, I don't look at the number three and get fascinated. But do I did I try to memorize 100 decimal places of pi when I was a kid? Sure. So I'm like, that's a terrible question. And then it was like, I enjoy meeting new people. And I'm like, well, what kind of people is it? Is it, what time of day is it? Have I eaten? I don't know. The main question of those tests need to be at the end. Did you get frustrated with the vagueness of these questions? <laughs> I know, right? And so even and and then the other one was like, there's another one too, where it was like, I'm not very good at remembering people's dates of birth. And I was like, well, I remember my date of birth and the people who are important to me. I remember their dates of birth, but I'm not going to remember some random person. So every single question I was deconstructing and so angry with. And then I was like, yes, okay, this is the test right here. <laughs> like, <Yep>. this is it. <laughs> And getting a diagnosis is so difficult that I'm sort of like, I'm at that place right now where I think a lot of neurodivergent women are, which is like, how important is it for me to get that? I really wish I had it because I know how important the ADHD diagnosis has been for me, but my ADHD is keeping me from pursuing the diagnosis because it's so complicated. Oh, yeah, that's a huge problem. Yeah. Executive functioning needing to even get access to diagnosis and care is just ridiculous. Right. And so, but that's, but I'm starting to wonder if the term neurodivergent is a cop out, if it's like a whitewashing, are we just afraid of autism? And so we're, we're steamrolling over autism with these generalized terms. So I was curious what you think. And like, how do you even, when you've given the diagnosis together, is it, does it feel like it's clearer for you to delineate between the two? No. Okay. No, it's taken me years (laughs) of reading, watching and listening to everything under the sun and doing a lot of deep thinking and reflection. And I'm still not really at a solid answer. Um, so if you figure that out, let me know. <laughs> that is not helpful, Annie. <laughs> no, no, no. But, I'm, but I am, I think, I think I have a little bit more clarity that hopefully might help you. I hope. And I, again, I'm not a medical professional, so take it with a grain of salt. Um, not that I think you need to be because <laughs> I've met many of them that are not great. Right. Well, exactly. Anyway, we won't go there. <laughs> I've also met some good ones. I'm not. I'm not anti healthcare. Yeah. So where do we start with that? <laughs> yeah, getting both was a huge privilege and so rare to start off with, uh, and I am so grateful for that. Um, I actually, one of my good friends, Alana, who was on my episode, I think it was two or three. Um, Talks too much meets her match. So she wrote a book yes. called Talks Too Much. Yeah, it's a great book, by the way. Recommend. Very easy to read. Um, Actually, similarly to yours, quite an ADHD-friendly read in terms of not too bulky and boring and you know what I mean? Anyway, (laughs) good for our dopamine brains. I love hearing that, right? Yeah, because it was written before my diagnosis. So I'm always like, it's not officially an ADHD book, but it's so clearly an ADHD book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) It is, it is. Um, But she's fantastic. And she reached out to me when I was first starting my podcast. And uh, I think I was reaching out to a couple of Facebook groups I was on saying, anyone want to come on? And she was like, yeah, me. And I'll give you a free copy of my book. And I'm like, what's your book? And she's like, it's this. I'm like, oh, I already own it. And I started reading it because it came out like two months earlier. And I I always troll for whatever's coming out. And yeah, it's it's a passion. It's my special interest or hyper-focus or whatever you want to call it, as I'm sure many of us are when we get diagnosed and want to figure it all out. But I read her book as we were chatting and talking about her coming on my show and I got about a third of the way through it and I said to her, because we were sending each other like voice notes, and I said, are you autistic? Because <laughs> of course I'm autistic and blunt like that <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> and she said, well, 
I think I might be. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm pretty sure you are. <laughs> and then she she went through this like crisis of confidence and she was like, oh, I've written this book and I haven't even like, and it's been all about ADHD and now I'm realizing some of it's autism or maybe even just overlaps. And I should, anyway, I was like, don't worry. It's going to, it's going to be a great book for many women that are diagnosed with ADHD before they realize that autism is a thing, if it is for them. And I'm not, like, I don't think it's a necessarily a bad thing that it's not clear or that you're focused on one or the other. Like, whatever works for you, whatever needs you need to get access to the world and have a more thriving life than being in some constant survival mode, like, you do you. But she's now writing her second book uh, and she's very much, she's now been officially diagnosed as autistic, which is awesome. But, yeah, I just love that story because that happens all the time, I think, uh, in our community where people are like, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, I, I was actually interviewed on one of our national um, television programs, The Project, in December. And it was a little segment on uh, social media and ADHD and autism diagnosis. And it was quite funny because they used me as the segue from the doctor saying that there's so much misinformation on TikTok to me being like, I don't think it's a problem. <laughs> like, <laughs> If it's going to be a difference between people going and seeking answers and help, good on them. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. And also like it's, it's a direct result of a lack of information from the healthcare community, right? Like we're not all online sharing our experience because we just want to. It's because we all know how hard it is to find these answers and to find the truth that isn't just a very pathologized, traumatized view, stereotyped view of autism and ADHD. Because, and I say to a lot of women who or and non-binary because there's a, a huge amount of them in our community as well. We're very gender diverse. Um, if you do take any autism tests, take them with a big grain of salt because as a female assigned female at birth, you will score lower just because of your gender um, and your lived experience. So generally I recommend for people to go to the Embrace Autism website and do the CAT-Q test, which is the camouflaging test. Because that's that can be quite helpful. Because if you're getting not very high on the autism scores, that doesn't necessarily mean you're not autistic. It just means that they're based on evidence of mostly cis white male boys. <laughs> mm. uh, okay, I'll put a link to the show note in the show notes to that one. This episode is brought to you by Loop Earplugs. Loop earplugs are my ultimate companion to a calmer and more focused life. If you're also an adult with ADHD, autism, or sensory issues, rest assured Loop earplugs are designed with us in mind. Whether you're at your favorite coffee shop or in your office cubicle or simply at home with your kids, with their advanced noise reduction technology, Loop earplugs gently lower the volume without blocking out the world completely. They're made from soft hypoallergenic materials that are comfortable for extended wear. They fit snugly in your ears, ensuring you can wear them discreetly throughout the day. Plus, they come with a sleek carrying case, making them convenient to take with you wherever you go. Now that I'm in grad school, I love to use the Engage Plus loops whenever I'm walking around campus. They're specifically designed to reduce the level of sound entering my ear without completely blocking out all noise. My teenager loves her quiet loops for studying, and my son loves his Engage Kids loops for short intervals like riding the school bus or taking tests at school. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get 10% off your order when you visit loopearplugs.com slash womenADHD. That's loopearplugs.com slash womenADHD, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Your life, your volume. So if, if you're talking about um, autism versus ADHD, and it's funny because 
there's so many ADHD coaches out there and there's so many people that are solely focused on ADHD, which is great. But um, sometimes online I get attacked, not very often, thank God. <laughs> but um, occasionally when I'll say something like autism is more stigmatized than ADHD, I get all these, I get a couple of ADHDs going, oh, are you kidding? ADHD is so stigmatized. And it is, absolutely. Like the fact that people don't think it's real, that we're just lazy, all those things, very, very much true. But in terms of a belonging aspect or whether you're comfortable saying that you have it, autism is usually harder in terms of people accepting that you have it, especially because of the social aspect. So when you think of ADHD, you think distractibility, hyperactivity. You don't necessarily think that much about social challenges. I mean, many ADHDs have social challenges and we'll get into that, but autism is often seen as someone who like can't have friends, can't talk, will make eye contact, blah, 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 which is not really what autism is. And that totally misses the point. But I can understand why people think that they're not that <laughs> because generally we're not. <laughs> so what I like to tell people um, is the, the diagnostic criteria is really just a summary of autistic ADHD people who are in crisis. It's not a true summary of what it is to be an autistic ADHD or one or the other. A lot of the behaviours that it talks about is either us experiencing trauma or us being judged from a lens that is not correct or affirming. So I like to talk about the social deficits category in uh, ASD and how you know, we have autistic people have social quote unquote deficits. And so there's there's now lots of research coming out in the last few years um, about a thing called double empathy problem. The double empathy problem was coined in the UK, I think, about a decade ago. And basically, um, I like to explain this in a really tacky way, but like, just bear with me. <laughs> so they took this group of autistic people and then they took this group of non-autistic people and each group separately had to do kind of like a Chinese whispers type thing where they sent one message through and then saw how accurate it was at the end. And then they put a group in the middle and they mixed it half and half, half autistic, half allistic, non-autistic, neurotypical, whatever you want to call it. And when they looked at all the results of these three groups, the group that was all autistic and the group that was all non-autistic got almost the same score in accuracy. And the group in the middle that was two completely different neurotypes botched it. <laughs> Yet we are told we have social deficits. But really, the fact that the social norms are based on neurotypical social behaviours is the only reason it's seen as a deficit. And the, and the reality is that we do live in a society where that is the dominant social culture, right? So it is still challenging. And when I talk about this stuff, I don't negate the fact that it, we struggle and it is hard. I guess I try to help people understand trying to separate or thinking that it's the autism that's the problem and understanding the systems, society and bias of the world that you live in, right? And, and another thing is a gender aspect as well. So women tend to be high masking, tend to be much more social. So, you know, eye contact is usually not a big thing for us. I mean, maybe we don't like it or we avoid it, but some of us can easily make it and have forced ourselves to, even if it doesn't feel natural. So a lot of, um, have you heard of PDA, pathological demand avoidance, or as I prefer, persistent drive for autonomy? 
which is much nicer. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah. Uh, some people use pervasive, but I still think that's super p- pathologizing. Um, PDA is really a very new area um, of understanding and, it, and it's referred to as the PDA profile of autism, but I question whether that's an autism specific thing because I know a couple of ADHDs that are I'm pretty confident aren't autistic that have a very PDA profile. And by that, I mean a very demand avoidant. I was going to say, I always just called myself oppositional and always used to joke that I would have been diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder had it existed in the 80s when I would have been diagnosed with it. But I'm like, I've always had demand avoidance and I am extremely oppositional with certain people. So yeah, that's how I always coined it for myself. But it's the same thing. Yeah. Absolutely. And also, so PDA is also very often talked about, and not this isn't a bad thing or anything, it's more just, I think, an acknowledgement that it's much more varied similarly to autism and ADHD in how it can show up for people. Um, but it's usually talked about people who are a little bit more oppositional and defiant outwardly so. And I actually grew up being not like that. <laughs> I was a good little girl. I was teacher's pet. I was very much a fawn response kind of gal. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I, I was op- oppositional and avoidant in every way, but it was always behind closed doors and I used really tricky little techniques to get out of things or avoid things. Um, and the only people who saw the real defiance were probably my parents and poor brothers <laughs> and now husband. <laughs> and and so in terms of the evolution of my own thought process on this is really because there was quite a long time where I would talk to my therapist and say, oh, do you think this is the autism or ADHD? And she'd be like, does it matter? I'm like, yes, it matters. <laughs> I like systemizing and categorizing and black and white and knowing what's what. Like, yes, it matters. But um, And I still think it matters, to be honest. But I also think that what's more important is focusing on access and focusing on what you want to be and who you are. So when I say that, I don't necessarily mean not focusing on the differences because it is a thing. But in my mind, I sort of, they're blurred so together these days, just because the majority of people I meet are both, the stats coming out are something like as high as 70% overlap. I think we'll hit a day where they won't be separate. I'm not sure that I'd call it like a neurodivergent spectrum or anything. I don't even like the term spectrum for autism because I'm like, we don't say there's a neurotypical spectrum, but they're just as diverse as autistic people. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. it just seems silly. Anyway, but I do think that it's very much a product of the pathologizing realm that we live in, trying to put our brains in boxes of symptoms, quote unquote, rather than acknowledging that different brain wiring like ours can just be traits and characteristics and they come in different forms. And um, on the topic of neurodivergent, I actually really like that term mostly because what it means is, one, I don't have to pick a name or say a bunch of names (laughs) of what my diagnoses are. And two, it doesn't allow for assumed stereotypes and stigma as much as if you were to say to someone, I have ADHD or I'm autistic, and then either be like, oh, no, you're not, which is so invalidating and horrible, or to say like, oh, yeah, but you're high functioning or something. Like Either way, it's not very nice. <laughs> not, not that it's intended badly, but I like neurodivergent because it almost forces the external people 
to then question, well, what's your neurodivergence? And not in terms of what are the labels, but what what does it look like for you? Because even within just autism and ADHD, we can be so different. I mean, let's just focus on sensory for a second, which absolutely fits more in autism, but ADHDers have sensory differences as well often. Um, Do we or is it really autism? Well, it <laughs> depends who you ask. I, I think every human has sensory differences. Um and I think that's something that makes it hard for people to understand when you're more away from the norm <laughs> and that it's a thing. Mm-hmm. But um, in terms of it being substantial sensory challenges and differences, um, I think that's definitely more of an autism thing. But even within that itself, you know, we have eight senses. Most people don't even know that. And we can be hyper and hyposensitive within even one of those and so people think, oh, autism uh, can't deal with light, noise, sound. That was noise and sound are the same thing. Smell, <laughs> taste, uh, all that stuff, proprioception, interoception. But it's more complicated than that. And so I guess the, the thing I like about neurodivergent is you can't make an assumption. And, I mean, end goals for me is that we get to a point where we don't need to be relying on specific labels for people to get access and the help they need to fit in a world that is not made for them. But we're not there yet. (laughs) We're going that way. Yeah. Well, and that's a conversation I have a lot, you know, going now that I'm going back to school to become a mental health counselor. And so it's a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about and thinking about in terms of the wellness model in therapy and how I find it really antithetical to a neurodivergent diagnosis and the importance of diagnosis. And so there's a real reluctance to diagnose. There's a real reluctance to pathologize in mental health counseling. And I'm like, that's ableist, (laughs) right? And exactly. And I'm like, you, it is incredibly important to diagnose because we don't view the diagnosis as, as pathological. So it's like the diagnosis is information. It's how we can categorize who we are and why we do what we do. It's how we can articulate that to the world and advocate for our needs, right? Exactly. And validate ourselves. And so it gives us permission to advocate for ourselves and to seek accommodation in a way that is so important. And and so when I hear these things like, oh, well, we're, you know, everybody has is on a spectrum of anxiety or something, you know, all these issues where it's like, we're all humans and we all are neurodivergent in our own way. That's why I start to get really worried about terms that are almost too overarching, where I'm like, are we starting to just whitewash some of these really, really important identities? And that's where I, you know, I feel like neurodivergent is a great term also, because I do feel like it kind of, it's it, like, I loved how you articulated it, which is like, it gives that opening to say like, well, what, how do you present? What are some of your traits, right? Like, how, what is your experience? And so I think within the community, it's really, really important, but I'm also sort of worried that it's going to just be like, well, everybody's neurodivergent, right? Like sort of in a way that's going to end up Make it difficult. I think that's definitely, it is happening already, I think. Um, That is a huge risk. Um, And I think in terms of ableism, which I didn't really talk about, but ableism is such a big one. And ableism, it's really about thinking deeply about what's behind the things that are said. So do you avoid the term autism or ADHD or autistic because you think they're bad, which is often why many people will say, oh, you're not that because I see that as such a bad thing, that's ableist. Or do you want to use neurodivergent 
not because you don't want to say that you're autistic or ADHD because you've embraced them and you accept that that's who you are, but because you're sick of other people making assumptions about what that means. And if you use this other term, they just don't have access to making those ignorant comments and not very informed judgments, right? Mm-hmm. So yes and no. I mean, it's not it's not a clear answer in terms of I don't necessarily think just putting everyone in neurodivergent is potentially the option, but I think it's a safety net. Like um, many people who struggle with mental illness, that's super stigmatizing. You go into a workplace and you have PTSD or anxiety or depression, just being able to articulate that and get accommodations for those things because some of them are permanent and some like uh, like we have a disability insurance scheme in Australia and some people on that have psychosocial disabilities where they have, you know, permanent PTSD or permanent long-term chronic anxiety, whatever. And that is, I think, really hard to get help for because as we know with mental health and stigma, it's like, well, just choose better and do better. And if you do these things, you won't have this anymore. And it's easier as an autistic ADHD to go, well, let me tell you, I'll still be autistic and ADHD even if I do everything in my power to change that. But it's harder to say I'll still be traumatized or anxious if I do everything to fix that, right? Mm, mm -hmm. So I think neurodivergent, I think, can be a safety net for mental health as well because you don't necessarily have to divulge what your neurodivergence is. And I, I say to people who do say those comments around everyone's different, everyone's diverse, everyone's neurodivergent, which I think they are really meaning well and trying to be inclusive, but they don't realize the implications that it's super invalidating and they've totally missed the point, <laughs> mm-hmm. is that neurotypical doesn't mean typical in the sense that there's a normal. It just means that there's this group that have a certain amount of neurological characteristics that are seen as the dominant and prioritized and valued characteristics of brains in this world. And and that doesn't mean that they don't struggle with things because we all do, we're human, right? Neurodivergent is just to the extent that brains diverge from that, that norm, that group, that cohort. So the more divergent your brain is, the more likely you are actually neurodivergent and not just neurotypical and human, like you're neurodivergent and human, obviously, (laughs) but like neurotypical and don't have access needs and don't have barriers in society that your brain not creates, but has because society doesn't put your brain first. It's just like if everyone was in a wheelchair, you wouldn't be disabled if you were a wheelchair user, right? Because society would be made for wheelchair users, but wheelchair users are disabled because society is not made for them and they need accommodations. So a lot of what I do, especially in the advocacy space, trying to teach the non-autistic world and the non-ADHD or neurotypical world is trying to help them understand what is accessibility for neurodivergent people. So my the term that I, I use is neuroaccessibility. And the reason I, I've, I've heard it used in like brain science before, but I've never heard it used in like a social justice um political way so I just kind of coined it myself I don't know if someone else has defined it but I couldn't find it (laughs) so I've just said it's basically about defining accessibility needs for neurodivergent people um and so what that means is like you know needing supports for executive functioning um needing social 
accommodations or adjustments, um, needing sensory support, like, but none of that's visible. And a lot of the time when we advocate for those things, we're told that they're not real or they don't believe us or they're not going to take us at our word and we need a bunch of medical people to write a bunch of reports to prove it, <laughs> which is super horrible and, and inaccessible. But um, a, a lot of the stuff I do on the side, um, for those who don't know my background, I am a lawyer. I'm just not practicing these days, but I still keep up to date and very much am across disability rights and human rights law. And so a lot of my work supporting uh, autistic ADHDers in the workplace who are very heavily discriminated against is to help them articulate what their needs are and try and get them met because so often they're not. And often we're too scared to ask. And even when we do ask, we're not believed. I actually quite often get contacted from Americans who want me to talk to their lawyers or lawyers who want me to explain <laughs> what it is because it's still like, I mean, obviously we're all out here going, we're trying to figure it out. You can imagine lawyers who have no mental health or medical training are trying to do it as well. So I kind of fit this weird middle zone of I've done both. Like I'm not medically trained, but like I've had to figure it out myself <laughs> so I can at least articulate it to those people. And I hope that in the future we head to a place where it's not so unclear and we have much clearer guidelines of what does it mean to need accessibility adjustments as a neurodivergent person anyway <laughs> end rant <laughs> oh my goodness yeah right I, I well even just this idea that like accommodations are so that you can be at your best and wouldn't everybody want you to be at your best but i think we still frame it and we still sort of have this internalized ableism around accommodations which is like i'm trying to get away with something i'm looking for handouts i'm trying to get a shortcut and so all of the masking that has involved like trying to show up as a, as a, somebody who is totally doesn't need help and is purely capable is keeping us from feeling like accommodations are going to help us be our best selves. And that just makes is common sense. Um, but I think it's like, it's a semantic issue that we have to get over in terms of just asking for accommodations in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also why like, I don't really like the whole superpower thing. I think it's like toxic positivity. Um, if that's what floats your boat, you say that you have a superpower, cool. But it's just not my jam. Um, but at the same time, I I do like to move away from the negative stuff. I don't believe that in order to have access that you need to sell your struggles, if that makes sense. And what, what I mean by that is, for example, um, in Australia we have a thing called the NDIS, which is the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And it's only been up and running for, I think it was 2013, so maybe a decade now, but it's still really early days. And ADHD is not included, but our autism is, which is so problematic. <laughs> but in order to get help, regardless of your autism diagnosis, you need to prove basically how broken you are and how not functioning you are. And practitioners are very much starting to realize how horrible it is to have to constantly write reports about how horribly not coping their clients are just to get funding. And this is kind of um, what I'm writing in my book, which is actually called Neuroaccessibility. <laughs> um, and my my ACCESS acronym is one of the elements of that is evaluation. And what that means is not like just where, finding out where you're broken and where you need help. It's actually doing a full profile of where your strengths are, because regardless of if you're quote unquote gifted or not, everyone has strengths, right? And everyone has challenges. 
It's just usually if you're neurodivergent, it's to a different level in one way or the other or both, whatever. So really it's about acknowledging both and figuring out how can we let your strengths shine and exist and not be like hidden or masked or ignored because we're solely focusing on helping your challenges while at the same time acknowledging that you do have those challenges and doing things to help make them easier and help you access employment, education and healthcare and life. It's really not that hard when you think about it like that, right? But it's just not really spoken about. Sorry, that's my um, phone alarm to remind me to eat lunch. <laughs> oh, my God. That, I can't believe it's been an hour already. Oh, my I goodness. That, we can still talk for a bit. Um, I just that, that goes off every day because otherwise I forget to eat. <laughs> but that's an accommodation like uh, that I need, right? And, and so actually this is something I really, really wanted to talk about because I, it's one of my most passionate areas is that there is nothing to be ashamed of in needing help. And I spent the first few years after I was diagnosed, which was pre-COVID, doing everything I could to fix myself and to be less autistic and ADHD. And, you know, leaning into the therapies, leaning into early intervention in all ways. I saw speech pathologists, OTs, psychologists, everyone. And I'm telling you, as much as I tried my best, it didn't do a lot. (laughs) I got a couple of benefits from it, but not a lot. What helped is acknowledging that how about we just know that this is who we are and actually start focusing on our energy on figuring out strategies and services that can help support those gaps. And that has changed my life. And that is why for the last year and a bit, I have been like everywhere. (laughs) If people look me up, you'll probably see a lot. Um, I'm actually like, I'm sure people are going to stop asking me to come on podcast soon because I'm on too many. (laughs) Like I get too many, too many offers, which is so nice, but also like I'm I'm not fixed. I'm not – I haven't figured out how to deal with my ADHD or autism. I haven't like hacked it. I've literally just embraced the chaos and put lots of systems and strategies in place to help me live. Like it's just that simple and it's not that simple. It's so hard and it takes so long to get there. But it's, again, similar to your book and diet culture and just the minute you stop fighting, the minute you – you literally reject diet culture and stop trying to shrink your body. The freedom that it allows you to not hate yourself and to accept yourself and to maybe give yourself access to things like comfortable clothes or clothes that fit properly or doing things that you said you wouldn't do until you lost the weight. Like it's there's a lot of correlations in the neurodivergent space and what we hold ourselves to and what we allow ourselves to do and judge ourselves for. Anyway. Well, and one of the things I think autism diagnoses have going for them, if that's the right terminology, is the fact that autism is embraced almost from the get-go in terms of an identity and a way of being that isn't like automatically like, how can we fix this? I mean, obviously there's like outliers like ABA, but it's- Well, not for adults anyway. They're like, it's you're too far gone as an adult. <laughs> They want to fix the kids and do early intervention on autistic kids, but not not adults. Yeah. Well, that's true. Okay. Maybe this theory is falling apart. No, 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 it's not. It's totally valid. But I think that I think ADHD is often 
presented in a way which is like, oh, now that I know what's wrong with me, how can I fix it? Right? How can I be normal? And I get so many women who come to me with coaching, which is like, help me be that version of myself I was before I burnt out. And I'm like, do you really want to be that person? You fucking burnt out. Like, <laughs> let's figure out how to not be that person. Yeah. So I think there's a real difference there in terms of the radical acceptance element that I think exists more within the autism community and just is worked into maybe the person first language. Like, I feel like it's woven into that identity a lot more than it is with ADHD because ADHD, there's all of that, you know, the ADHD coaches too, that are just like, we'll hack your ADHD and we're going to master productivity and we're going to do it. And you're just like, shut up. Yeah. We're going to fix your executive functioning challenges. Woo. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And I'm, like all right (laughs) that's a different tangent for another day yeah or you will and then you'll burn out (laughs) and have consequences right or you're gonna figure out a way to have your environment work for you that's what it's not about like jamming yourself into exactly it's all about changing the external right yeah now, I do want to pivot a bit because one of the things I haven't actually talked a lot about uh, on this podcast, so I wanted to get your opinion about it, was Ehlers-Danlos, which is is something I don't know a lot about, but I know the hypermobility in Ehlers-Danlos is very common. There is a lot of overlap with uh, with autism. And why is why is it common? Because it seems to me like it is not, it's not neurological, right? Or is it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> but... Um, it's actually also more common in ADHD, just not quite as much or known. The link's just starting to be noticed more. Is it or is it really autism? <laughs> That's well, my or are we all three? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> no, so um, and there's mixed opinions on this, but um, some people, so uh, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, there's like 14 types first off um and most of them can be tested genetically but the main one that most people have which is hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome uh, which i have is not uh, able to be tested genetically it's um like a diagnosis of basically eliminating everything else similar to fibromyalgia right that to making sure there's nothing else that can explain the similar symptoms or whatever anyway um but it's very genetic my mom also is eds and so is her father um and that's, I'm not saying that's why it's genetic. The studies show it's genetic. I'm just saying it's genetic in my family, <laughs> um, obviously. But uh, so is autism and ADHD. They're, they're all three. I love your mom, by the way. That episode is so good. <laughs> She's great, right? <laughs> she was so nervous. <laughs> so cute. Um, and, yeah, so they're, very, they're all very genetic. And some people, um, some researchers have even started to say, um, and I'm not sure how popular this is yet or whether it's actually going to develop into anything, but they've even talked about how potentially having um, Ehlers-Danlos, which is basically a connective skin tissue disorder, if you want to call it a disorder, it's just our our, um, connective tissue is different. It's more stretchy or hypermobile, fluid, whatever, malleable. And then we have issues with like joints and pains and dislocations and all of that. But again, there's 14 types, so they're all different. And it's similar to like, I think of it like – uh, ADHD, you've got combined, inattentive, hyperactive. There's three types, right? But even within those types, there's so much diversity, similar in Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. But obviously, it's a physical thing. Yeah, so people will talk about um, the how that connective tissue difference can affect brain development. And, you know, some people will talk about autistic brains being hyper-connected, 
and very intense with a very turned on nervous system. And some people are starting to think maybe there's something there with ELS-Danlos syndrome or EDS. I don't know. Who knows? I'm very much observing what's what's coming out. But um, it is very, very common. And I actually only found out that I had HEDS after and through that same psychiatrist that told me I was autistic because some of the stuff that came up in my big assessment were a lot of issues that I had with chronic pain and uh, joint issues and all of those things that he was sort of like, oh, I should probably mention this. And it's funny because I've spent my whole life having these problems and seeing many, 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 many physios and doctors. And from a very, very young age, I was told um, I was hypermobile, but then it was like nothing else. It was just like, it's an interesting fact about you. Like you have brown hair. Cool. And no one ever said there's this thing called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And some people who are hypermobile are also EDS. You can just be hypermobile without EDS, of course. And there is H, I think HSD, hypermobile disorder syndrome or something. I don't know, whatever. Hey, there's another one that's just hypermobility disorder. It's all pathologizing. Blah. Go Google it. Yeah, go Google it. <laughs> <laughs> Not a doctor. But it just blows my mind that even though I had a lot of these obvious things now that I understand being connected to EDS and it was never, ever raised. But I think that also kind of just shows the lack of knowledge. Similarly, when, you know, so many doctors, even psychiatrists still don't really understand autism. So even some people who their whole job is the body, like physios and sports physicians, don't get it. And, you know, this is just the explosion of information that's helping many of our lives because getting access to these diagnoses and these answers, all it does mostly is validate our experience and help us get better, more appropriate and accessible healthcare and lives. So how were you tested for for hypermobile EDS, if it, if not a blood test? No, not a blood test. So, um, and a lot of people do still get the blood test to check that they're not one of the other types, but I was, a, I'm a very black and white case of HEDS. So my rheumatologist was like, I don't think you need the blood test. I'm confident you're HEDS and not any of the other EDSs. So already seeing a rheumatologist might be a, a, <laughs> might be a, a hint. Yeah. Well, so the two people that can officially diagnose it, well, in, at least in Australia, are rheumatologists or geneticists. Um, and I had actually seen four rheumatologists before I got my EDS diagnosis, not seeking an EDS diagnosis, but with all my chronic pain stuff. And the last two that I'd seen, I had mentioned EDS because I'd started to become aware of it, but this was before I saw the rheumatologist that specialized in EDS. And they both dismissed me. Uh, one said that I couldn't because I wasn't hypermobile enough, which um, there's a thing called the Baton score. I can send you a link um, to show people who are interested, but you need, I think, seven out of nine to be considered hypermobile as a kid and six out of nine as an adult. And there was one thing I couldn't do. I'm, I think I'm six or seven out of nine. I, I'm just enough to be considered hypermobile, but I also had an injury, so I can no longer do the wrist touching on this hand. And he said, because I wasn't hypermobile in every joint that I couldn't be. And the other one said I couldn't be because my skin wasn't stretchy enough, which is it is one of the symptoms of Ehlers-Danlos, but it's only for a couple of the types and again, just shows the very much lack of information. But in my mind, as a lawyer, <laughs> when you go to see a, let's say, family lawyer, they're not going to give you property law advice. 
Or a family lawyer who specializes in divorce is not going to give you advice about domestic violence. Sorry, I don't want to trigger anyone. But like, and I'm not a family lawyer, but I'm just trying to use an example. It blows my mind that health professionals are confident to say anything outside of their specialty. So the two rheumatologists that told me this had no background in EDS. They were pain specialists who specialized in physical injuries that I was seeing from my car accident. Um, and they were absolutely not known as being EDS. Similar to, um, you know, I have a blood condition called Factor V Leiden, which is a genetic thing as well, it means you're more disposed to blood clots. Um, and when I was pregnant, I went to see a hematologist just to get advice on how to manage the pregnancy and make sure I didn't risk anything wrong with me or the baby in blood clots. And they were very dismissive because I was only heterozygous, which means one and not two genes of it, which they weren't wrong, but they didn't take into consideration all the other factors, including me being a fat person and the influence that weight has on increased risk of blood clots and a few other things. And then I later found out, and this was like many years ago now, so like smack on the back, Annie, for not doing your due diligence, but now I do <laughs> too much of it, is um, I have been trying to get, so I'm going through fertility issues right now. I've been quite public about them, secondary infertility and multiple miscarriages and I'm currently about to go and see another hematologist. And this time I've specifically gone and found one that specializes in genetic blood clotting disorders. So I'm hoping that that means they're going to at least understand the more complex nature because, and, and a lot of the stuff I do is in healthcare accessibility um, more than probably employment and definitely more than in the education space um, because I've had so many health problems. I've faced so many health barriers and I've struggled to advocate for my needs as someone whose entire job was to be an advocate. Like I was trained to, I'm a brilliant debater, not to toot my own horn. I love arguing. <laughs> um, and I still had trouble. So that's kind of what started me going into this space is like, I need to help others because if I struggle with it, then how, what chance in hell does anyone who doesn't have the privilege of a law degree or um, a career that has enabled them to have these skills, right? What were we talking about? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the, the EDS, the EDS, the rheumatology. So yeah, they. I just find it really strange that these doctors would have said that I couldn't possibly have it without even doing the actual full test. So luckily by then I was very aware of how there are quite a few doctors out there who don't know a lot, <laughs> especially in certain areas. So I was very much, I didn't let it bother me. I would have if it was the years before that. Um but I went and finally saw this rheumatologist who specialized and she, it, it's basically like a, they go through your entire history, you know, checking everything from, um, you know, have you had dislocations, um, joint issues, chronic pain, and then they do like a full physical and check all your joints and everything. And it's, it's not that complicated, but they also do like an EKG and a few things just to mostly, um, check for POTS and dysautonomia and a few other things that can be common with EDS and even autism. Um, but, yeah, I hope that answers your question. I think I, I digressed a bit. <laughs> no, it, it's fascinating because it's, it it's something I've been looking into myself because I've, I have had, I, you know, I had similar to you, I had was very, very flexible as a child and used to be able to do weird hyperextensions. And I, I actually lied to people and said I had dislocated my shoulders, even though I never dislocated my shoulders, but I acted at like my arms did things that 
you couldn't they explain couldn't why they did, <laughs> right? And so I just made up this story as a child that I, I had dislocated my shoulders, uh, which never happened. But I could, you know, I had a lot of issues like that. And now as an adult have like significant joint problems and was just going through this whole health scare with it was just this health issues with my neck and shoulders and I had lost hearing and I had vertigo and I was so I was going to all of these doctors who were different specialists and they were so siloed I was going to ENTs I was going to an osteopath I was going to an oral surgeon trying to figure out what was the root cause of the dizziness and the hearing loss and the vertigo and and it turned out it was all related to my neck and my shoulders. And that's where EDS came up because I was like, what? And and then, you know, finding out that this was actually quite common with neurodivergence where I'm like, oh, my goodness, another thing. Here like, we go again. But, <laughs> but I wasn't able yep. to make that connection because I was like, why? How would something that is primarily in our tissue and our joints relate to our brain? But you did. You explained it much better than the internet yeah, yeah. so <laughs> no well I mean, hope so <laughs> um no it's interesting you say that because um with my car accident I basically when it happened I didn't go to hospital immediately or anything it didn't seem that bad my car wasn't written off I thought this isn't gonna be I didn't re- I didn't think I'm gonna have you know four years of chronic pain and a bunch of surgeries that's for sure um but you know a few months went by and the whiplash that they said would improve didn't. And then a year went by and it didn't get better. And then other things started popping up, like really bad TMJ pain on my right side. It was all on my right side, right neck, right jaw, right shoulder, right wrist. And the then the wrist got worse and it was just like nothing was helping and some even made it worse. Yeah, so I eventually once – and this was only actually – after I had my son, so in the last two years, but it was when I he was very, very young, like newborn, I um I started seeing a physio that wasn't a specialist in EDS, but she understood it enough that she wasn't ignorant of it, especially hypermobility. And she had some extra training than most physios get in, I don't know specifically what it was, but it was something to do with really having that focus on the human body about how connected it is. And a lot of physios will treat like one injury and just that area. And she was very much, um, she was very much seeing what linked to each other. And so what we ended up finding through me seeing her is that most of my wrist problems and jaw problems were coming from my neck. Mm, mm -hmm. And because most of the issues I'd had in the years before was my shoulder was my worst thing. And then my, um, jaw no one really looked at my neck that much um beyond acknowledging that it was still stiff and maybe the whiplash never really fully went away anyway uh long story short um i have gone from living in really severe chronic pain for years to very 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 mild i don't want to say cured (laughs) because it's not but my pain has gotten so much better i don't have any of the issues to the extent that I did before. And most of it is truly just finding a physio that would treat my body as the unique body that it is. And God, I wish we could find doctors in every area that did this, right? Where they weren't so siloed and specialized that they didn't know about any of the other stuff that when you're facing a neurodivergent patient, guaranteed we're complex patients. We are not your cookie cutter textbook in any way from our pain response to our uh, healing ability, so many different things. 
And I think it's really, really not good that currently doctors are not trained in that area. And I think that in the future, we're heading to a space where it's going to be in the core of medical training because there's just so much damage happening from people going in to see every kind of doctor and them not being aware of all these differences and how to adapt their treatments. Well, I always joke that I'm like, if you find talking to medical professionals to be traumatic, then that is your diagnosis right there. Yes, that's so true, though. It's so true. I mean, to be, I'm sure people listening are going to be like, everyone finds that traumatic. But like truly, truly traumatic and difficult. Yeah, you definitely want to look into it. <laughs> well, and I even, you know, I've said this on the podcast before, like even when I was diagnosed with ADHD, I was so, I mean, not only was I fumbling with all of my paperwork, but I was like, you have to say out loud to me that I have a combined ADHD diagnosis or because I will always leave. If you don't say it right now, very clearly to me, I will leave and always worry that I misconstrued the conversation or like the amount of just like feeling like I'm explicit, literal, direct communication. Yeah. Right. But also just the like how bewildering it is to be in that environment. It's so overstimulating and to get this information and then just be thrust out into the street. I'm always like, did I hear that correctly? Did I not? Do I remember this? Do I not? Like, you know, now I'm very good about getting everything in writing and not just like nodding and being like, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. But like, you know, realizing that so much of that experience is so overstimulating that a lot of us just stumble out of a doctor's office just being like, what just happened? Like that. That's the diagnosis right there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. It's so true. So true. Uh, sometimes I even, um, these days, if I'm pretty stressed about it, I'll ask the doctor if I can put my dictator on, um, which is one of the assistive technologies I use quite frequently, <laughs> um, mostly just for my working memory and, you know, making sure that I know what's being said and I'm not questioning what I think I heard and then I can go do my own research and there's a whole bunch of reasons and not every doctor's open to it um, but most of them are pretty fine with it if you explain that that's why and it's not just to get on the record of stuff that you may use against them one day <laughs> you know because <laughs> they're all terrified of lawsuits uh, <laughs> especially if you're a lawyer well, I just I think that's also tells you how yeah. I've been able to advocate for myself and have a sense of humor about it where now I'm just like yeah I'm not going to remember anything you just said so you're going to need to write that down like I don't there's no shame there there's no sense of like I'm so sorry no way and use humor if it helps. Like, right? Yeah. yeah. Whatever you need to get that access, whatever makes it easier for you to articulate it. And and the other thing is, um, just going full circle back to ADHD and autism and overlapping, is um, when you do talk about things like how you struggle with maybe social skills or keeping relationships or whatever you want to call it. No matter what any of the quote unquote symptoms or what I prefer to say traits or characteristics are. It's really important, I think, to look underneath them and and to try, and it's not an easy thing to do, and you're not always going to get the answers the minute you do this, but to try and figure out what's the motivation. So, like, do you struggle in when you go out with your friends to, like, communicate with them because you're so distracted by the noise and sensory overload or is it because you're distracted because you're just distractible or is it because um, maybe they're not using very literal language or not talking about your interests, your special interests. So you're a little bit like, oh, do I have to make small talk? (laughs) Um, What are the reasons behind it? And it's not necessarily that you need to know them, but it helps to know them in terms of just understanding yourself better and, and feeling like you don't have to 
fight it as much or even being able to articulate it. A lot of, I mean, I think a lot of neurodivergent people attract neurodivergent friends. Um, I have had friends in life that didn't stay in my life very long because I was not, I was never the type of friend that could catch up regularly ever. <laughs> so everyone, all my really good friends in life have been the ones that I can disappear for six months and then come back and we can have a, a really long lunch or dinner. And it's like, we never, never were apart. Um, and they're mostly neurodivergent. <laughs> I was blown away from the neurodivergent woman podcast when, when they were talking about the relational versus informational conversation and how that kind of falls between uh, neurodivergent and neurotypical. And it's been really interesting to to think about that and to notice it in real time. And one of the things I remember really being being very confused about was gossip. Gossip was something I never was into. I'd never understood it. And I felt very uncomfortable by it and so like i've just sort of looking over the course of like female friendships especially that that for me is like a marker where i where i was like every time i would be around women and they would start to gossip about other women which i think is a very relational tendency i was always very like why are you doing why are we wasting our time doing that like like this is so mean and boring <laughs> yeah and it was yeah it just seems so awful and unnecessary and i and i could never understand why i found it so awful and now i'm like because it's terrible but also like i could never really decide the difference between that kind of gossip where you're just talking shit about somebody or just being like isn't it interesting that this person does this right where like i'm like is that also gossip like and and i find that that is so much more informational right which is like i'm trying to figure out who this person is and what makes them tick and <laughs> yeah and being curious and not not nasty you know <laughs> right yeah. yeah and so i found that really interesting to me thinking about all of these friendships and the difficulties i had with a lot of female friendships coming down to the relational versus informational and that was so enlightening to me to think about like where that breakdown was and why when two neurodivergents are speaking even though we've just met we're like magnets right and so this idea of like, do you enjoy meeting new people is such a problematic question. Such a problematic question. <laughs> like, it, it 100% depends. Uh, mostly, maybe not. <laughs> but sometimes, yeah. <laughs> this is why I started a podcast so I could like have an excuse to reach out to amazing women like you. <laughs> Same. That was literally why I'm like, I want to just talk to all these people that I keep listening to and who I think are awesome and need to get their voices out there more. It's, I love it. I love what we do and I love our community and it's beautiful. Oh, well, thank you, Annie. But yeah, I'm, I love ADHD, by the way, and I am, I do a lot in the ADHD space. I just, I just don't like the term and because so many people I, I work with and uh, help are autistic as well, I'm just like, it's just both. <laughs> I don't I don't feel the need to um, differentiate as much. But it, you, in saying that, you do kind of need to in terms of diagnosis and, you know, people believing you and giving you access. So it's not – I'm not saying you don't have to care about the differences and I still want to. It's more of a, an acknowledgement that it's really not super clear. Well, for me, it's mostly a curiosity thing, right? Where it's just like, how do I make all, how does, how do I make this make sense to me? It's the same thing with like EDS and the brain where I was like, I don't get it until I do. And then I'm like, oh, okay. Now all the pieces align. Exactly. I make sense. It makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> 
So that's what it is for me. And, uh, you know, and it's so fitting that when I was diagnosed with ADHD, so the podcast is called Women in ADHD, but now I'm like, I very much, I'm like, uh, we're neurodivergent and it, it all comes together. And I'm like, do I change the name of the podcast? Because I do feel like, well, because I feel like it's a gateway. It, it's a gateway diagnosis. <laughs> I think it's a gateway. It is. No, but, and I also think it's just a gateway for, I love, I actually really, I'm on a lot of Facebook groups and I really like the ones that are just ADHD and just autism. And I'm seeing in the last 12 months, it's really growing that overlap that people are becoming more aware of. And I think it's really good to have those spaces. If your podcast was like that you have ADHD, I'd probably want to change it, but you're women and ADHD. Like, I think that's fine. I think that's great. And the fact that autism is so commonly also an ADHD is thing. Cool. <laughs> like, I don't think you have to change it. I like it. Right. Yeah. And it's also why I found you all those years ago. Because <laughs> I was looking up ADHD and autism. That's why I'm, like, I'm probably losing out not having those in my title because people aren't looking for Princess and the Bee. <laughs> Who knows? I've, I've admitted that in the past where I'm like the single smartest thing I did was to name it women in ADHD. Cause I had no platform. I, I didn't, I was, I'm nobody like, I'm just sitting here in my, in my living room. So it's like, that was the, because I wanted women who were immediately just Googling like I did. What is this? And what is, what is ADHD in women? And that's how people found me. Right. <laughs> you did. Thank you, Katie. <laughs> this has been so good. I did something right. <laughs> Oh, this has been so great, Annie. You have not heard the last from me, I swear, because I'm going to keep stalking you. <laughs> oh, me either. I'm going to I'm going to hold you to that. You're coming on my pod. <laughs> it just might take like a year. <laughs> I'm just so all over the place. <laughs> but, you know, I, I know that you'll understand me because we get each other. Right. It does, yeah. You can you can call <laughs> me in two years and it'll be like no time has passed. I will. That was what I will. Absolutely. <laughs> And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much, and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one -on -one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then.